saying, I heard many years ago, stuck with me for some reason. It goes like this. Nobody's completely worthless. They can always serve as a bad example. I don't know how biblical that statement is. But I do think it echoes how we feel about ourselves quite often in life. What value do I have? Other than maybe I can tell somebody else about the mistakes I made and how they should avoid them. Maybe that's the best I can do. We tend to think we are insignificant. We tend to think that there's other people that have a lot of influence and a great testimony. They do a lot for the Lord, but what do I do? What can I do? And unfortunately, I think so many conclude that the answer to that is not much. When I was a young man, somewhere in my early 20s, I had rededicated my life to Christ and I knew God wanted me to be involved in ministry, but I didn't know anything. I was just, I was pretty much biblically ignorant. And having grown up in a Methodist denomination, a lot of good people there. But the church I attended, there wasn't any any real solid teaching, and it, in particular, held to this idea that you never were sure whether you were going to make it to heaven or not. You just kind of had to hold on, do your best, hope that maybe God would let you in someday. Well, we lived in a little small town of about three hundred people, and. Some, for some reason, out of the blue, I mean, it was, it was unusual for somebody to move to our town. It wasn't unusual for people to leave, but it was unusual for people to show up. Uh, a man moved into our community and he, he set up a, a business. He was a used car salesman. He started a used car lot. I don't think we had a used car lot. Maybe it was a the only one in town. And he, he started coming to the little Methodist church uh, we attended. Became acquainted with him. Got to where I'd stop by the, the car lot and when he was not doing a whole lot, just sit there and talk to him. And he loved the Lord and he was very knowledgeable. And doctrinally, he was great because he began to, he began to help me understand the Bible. And theology and, and in particular what the Bible taught about the security of the believer which was uh, I was <laughs> fantastic uh, as well it's what I needed and what I uh, not only needed to know but I mean I, I needed to have that assurance well he, he stayed there a long time after I left but I never could figure out why did he move to our little town to start a car? I didn't know anybody when he moved there. And why did he come to our little Methodist church seeing as how what he believed wasn't the same? <laughs> I don't know. Other than God 
sent him there for me. Maybe for a lot of other people too. And I'm sure he probably didn't probably didn't think of himself as being that important to the work of God or that influential. But just being who he was impacted my life and probably a lot of other people's lives. And why he was there? Other than that's where God wanted him, and I'm sure it was. Maybe he couldn't say anything. Now, I'll tell you all that because I'm going to come back to it here when we get into our parable. I need uh, four people to volunteer to read a quick verse. Anybody else? One more. Everybody should have two sheets this morning. One on the parable of the leaven. A second one on the parable of the hidden treasure. The first one is one side. The second one is two sides. We're going to start with the parable of the leaven. We will get to the hidden treasure. I don't know if we'll finish it. But if not, we'll finish it next week. So looking at Matthew... Chapter 13, at verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. That's it. One verse. What are we to make of it? Well, it's one of these series of parables here in Matthew 13 that describe the day in which we live, the time period which was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets and Old Testament believers, the time period between Christ's first coming and his return, which we know will be at the end of that period we call the tribulation period. So the parable of the leaven in Matthew 13.33 tells us something more about this day in which we are now living. There's very, very scant information in the Bible that tells us about this day in which we're living. We've got all kinds of prophecies about what's going to happen in the future. And we have plenty in the Old Testament telling, about, telling us about Christ and pointing toward, toward His coming. But this, this time in between not much said. But this is where we live. So this is why it's important to us. This is a fourth, the fourth parable out of seven. Again at verse 33. So let's talk about the parable of the leaven. The first thing I want you to know it says Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Comma, you see the punctuation? We won't find that in the original, but to help us in English. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Then you have this modifying phrase, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour that was all leaven. The point, though, from the very beginning, the comparison, the kingdom of heaven is compared to leaven. Stop there. Don't get hung up on the 
other details, which a woman took and hid and so forth. Only what has to do with the leaven in this parable is the meaning, the comparison. Remember we've said this every week. A parable compares or contrasts two things. It has one comparison, not five comparisons, not three, not two, one. And the old, the old saying we've referred to, do not make a parable walk on all fours. So it's important to note at the outset, the kingdom of heaven is compared to the leaven. Now leaven, or we would call it maybe yeast, was contained in a piece of dough that was kept from a previous batch and then put into the next batch of dough. I wish I could explain to you the uh, chemical process involved in all that, but I would just mess it all up. Needless to say, yeast and, and leavening has to do with uh, a chemical reaction and and it's generally described as fermentation. And there's microbes involved in the wheat and the interact and so on. But as that, those microbes interact and that chemical reaction takes place, it expands the dough because it, it permeates in and around the uh, molecules of the dough. You ladies probably could explain this better than me because you probably have done this. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, uh, bread with yeast, that, that's really good. Uh, that's the best. I like crackers once in a while, but you know, that's for soup. Okay? <laughs> now the amount of wheat here is mentioned. The New American Standard says three pecks. The New King James says three measures. It's three something. It was evidently the ephah, which was a Hebrew measure, which amounts to about three-fifths of a bushel or approximately five gallons. This is a large batch of bread. But they had large families back then. This may well have been a standard recipe. You can go all the way back to Genesis 18, 6, when Abraham prepared the meal for the two angels and the pre-incarnate Christ that came in chapter 18 of Genesis. And uh, he mentions, in the scripture mentions there, he said, prepare three measures. So it's a pretty standard recipe for a large family, no doubt. It would have made a lot of bread, that's the point. A lot of bread. So we're not just talking about you know, a loaf. As the yeast was worked into the dough, it permeated the entire batch of dough, obviously, because of the rise. Let's try to see if we can wrap our minds around what's going on here. How do we understand? Again, we've already made this point. Keep it in mind. The yeast is the point of the parable. It is the yeast that is compared to the kingdom of heaven. The woman represents nothing more than a woman making bread from yeast and dough, which is normal, everyday practice in Israel those days. Agricultural 
environment. I mean, they were, they all raised crops. They, they, bread was critical. And it was the wife, the mother, who made the bread. So he's just describing a normal scene in Israel. All these parables are, every one of them, just what people would see out here. Jesus, the master teacher, just takes something over here that everybody was familiar with and just use it as a, a, a comparison, a contrast, an example, a parable that just enlightens people. And that, that's what we're, we're doing. We're, we're, we're benefiting from that as well when we read this. But what he described was not unusual at all. Now, we have to address this issue. There are cases in the scripture where leaven is symbolic of evil influence. So a lot of interpreters, and that's probably the predominant figure you'll find in the Bible, a lot of interpreters will take that and they will impose it upon this parable because that's what they found it meant somewhere else. However, you remember back in the days of Moses, the Passover meal, they had to prepare bread of un, no leaven, unleavened bread. Flat, anything. Would a tortilla equate to that? I'm not sure. Uh, it was just flat, unleavened. And they were told for the Passover meal that they would only to partake of unleavened bread. And this became a part of the Jewish Passover celebration. But think about it. The unleavened bread symbolized their freedom from Egyptian influence. So again, the leaven in this case was looked at from an evil standpoint. Because they had been under the influence of Egyptian culture. Now they're being removed from that, and the symbol then was more of a freedom from that, from that influence that had previously permeated their lives. So the point here is that even in the Passover use of unleavened bread, the leaven had a, a significance in terms of its permeation, whether good or bad. study sheet, you'll note the reference Leviticus 23, 15-17. We'll turn there and read it, but note it. Also in the law of Moses, there was a command for the Israelites to offer leavened bread in a sacrifice to the Lord, and it had to do with the Feast of Weeks. Now the Feast of Weeks which eventually became known as the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost refers to 50, and the Feast of Weeks was 50 days after the Passover. The Feast of Weeks involved a first fruits offering of the wheat harvest, which was brought to the temple and offered to the Lord. The first fruits of their crop. 
And in Leviticus 23, 15 to 17, it specifies leaven, not unleavened. So again, the leaven, it sometimes represents evil. Leviticus 23, it obviously didn't because it's offered to the Lord. Remember, the lambs had to be spotless that were offered. So they couldn't be, could not have been representative of evil in that case. Other cases, yes, it's used that way. But, what about Matthew 13? In Matthew 13, given what we just studied, just looked at, the leaven should be, should be regarded as a symbol of permeation. There's no reason in Matthew 13 to assume that it's evil. Now, has the church been corrupted historically? Yes. It's happened many times in many denominations in many ways. That's true, but I just don't think that's what the parable of eleven is all about. Now let's compare the parable of eleven and the parable of the mustard seed. Remember the mustard seed, smallest of the herb seeds, smallest of the garden seeds planted, but it becomes the biggest plant in the garden, up to 15 feet high. The tremendous and quick growth. And the birds come and nest in the branches. Remember that? Two weeks ago. I know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday myself. So, so I think about it. But a couple weeks ago we discussed this, all right? And some people think the bird is a symbol of evil because the birds picked up the seed in the parable of the sower. The point then, again, like in the parable here today, the parable of the mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven is like the mustard seed or the mustard plant, not the bird. Don't make it walk on all fours. The bird only serves to augment the large stature of the mustard plant. Big enough for birds to lodge in the, in, uh, the branch. So, the mustard seed refers to external growth. And we gave out some statistics about Christianity and the millions of people worldwide even today and not to even think about all over the centuries and Christianity is still probably by double the largest religion in the world even if you take out half of the number and say no that may not be true Christians it's we still outnumber any other religion so Yes, historically the church has grown. We, God's power is, is phenomenal. And we shouldn't be discouraged. We sometimes think, well, no, we just, you know, as Christians, we're in the minority. And, and listen, there's literally over a billion. If you just eliminate a big bunch because you think they may not be really truly believers or just professing, there's still well over a billion worldwide today. You know how many atheists there are? Less, far less than a billion. Only like a couple, a uh, couple hundred, a couple. I think it was two hundred million, something like that. We, we, because the media and what we see and hear, we think Christianity's shrinking, and we're not going to have much influence in this world. Everybody else is. That's not what Jesus said, and that's not what's happened. So external growth, the mustard seed, the leaven refers to internal permeation. So let's go back to our flow chart quickly. God's ultimate authority given to Adam 
Adam yields to Satan and his will, Satan then usurps that authority from Adam, and it is Satan who controls the kingdoms of the world. Doesn't mean that Christians don't have a powerful place in this, as we're going to see. Now, Jesus says, at this juncture in history, the kingdom of heaven is here. It's going to be here when he said it. <laughs> that kingdom, it's not a political kingdom. It's a kingdom that exists in the sense of individual people placing their faith in Christ and giving him their allegiance versus giving Satan and the world system our allegiance. Every parable in Matthew 13 is about this. But the mustard seed did what? It said the kingdom of heaven is going to get really big. It's going to grow. Now what about parable 11? A little something different. Watch it. It's not about the growth of the kingdom. But it's about influence of the kingdom even on the kingdoms of the world. Think about it. Here in the Houston area, we have Houston Methodist Hospital. Christian influence. I'm not saying that any of these organizations or hospitals are what they once were, but there's a, in the main, you see the influence. Houston Methodist Hospital, Baylor, St. Luke's Medical Center, St. Joseph's Medical Center. I assume that's probably Catholic hospital because of the saint involved in front of it, but it's still, you see the influence even yet today, not, not just within the confines of our common faith, but reaching even out. Uh, Y'all like to go to Chick-fil-A, right? But you don't go on Sunday, do you? That's right. Uh, Mr. Kathy said, no Sunday sales. They're still holding to that. Now, he's long gone, but uh, they're maintaining that principle, that influence. Uh, some of you ladies in particular probably like to go to Hobby Lobby. We all know where they stand. I don't know if anybody familiar with the Shepherd's Guide. Shepherdsguide.com. If you go on the line, it's a listing of Christian businesses. So if you want to, you want to do business, you don't know where to go, you want to deal with somebody you think you might trust more than the other, you can go to shepherds, uh, shepherdsguide.com, and you'll find that. I, I went on there this morning, I found things like auto dealers, attorneys, landscapers, carpet cleaners, uh, heating and air conditioning, people do tax returns, and they have dog kennels, and uh, just on and on and on. We don't realize the permeation of influence that Christianity has in our society. Now, the recent Supreme Court decision, which was great in terms of uh, rolling back Roe versus Wade, Christian influence is, is what's happened there. Uh, 
Uh, there's so many ways, and we could spend a lot of time. I just want you to see that. Now, eventually, the kingdoms of the world are going to be wiped out, obviously. Uh, and this is going to roll into the millennial kingdom. Yeah. I'm on your on your visual there with the with the message. See, to me, it's the, the, the blue square getting bigger. With the permutation, it's like if you put a bunch of small blue dots in the other part where it comes to the input, and then it kind of goes through to the next. That might have been a better way to, to represent it. Uh, but the kingdom of heaven has influence over in the, within the kingdom of the world. So what was Mr. Arnold, the car dealer, who impacted my life as a young man, doing? He was exerting, exerting Christian influence in that community. Now, I was already a believer, and he was too, so a little bit different. But what I want to say to you is, he, he probably didn't even think about that. He just beat himself. Just being a believer. And selling cars. And so... We do a lot of that, I think we just, well, I'm just a Christian, and I just, you know, we don't stop to think what God's using, how God's using us, and how we are influencing people around us, believers and unbelievers. So we must not conclude that we can only serve as a bad example. The interpretation, the kingdom of heaven would exert great influence in the world. Applications. We should not despair over the condition of the world, but rejoice in the fact. In fact, double rejoice in the fact. <laughs> uh, that's a mistake. Rejoice in the fact that we have a purpose and that our service is not in vain. Who has 1 Corinthians 15 58? I do. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable in your work for the Lord, knowing it's not in vain. Application number two, we should actively be using our influence for the glory of God. We are the salt of the earth. According to Matthew 5, 13 to 16. We are the light of the world, according to Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Another parable. A couple parables of Jesus. Salt was valuable. Even Roman soldiers were paid in salt. It was a valuable commodity in that day. We're the salt of the world. We're valuable. We're the light of the world. We're, well, nothing could exist without light. Light's very valuable. And both the salt has that ability to, you know, preserve and uh, to flavor what we say and preserve, uh, Christians are kind of preservative in society, that influence we're talking about. First Corinthians 10.31, who has that? Whatever then <clears throat> you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do is influence. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, 
I'm not going to take time to go into the context of that. But whatever we do, do all of the glory of God. Unfortunately, we do a whole lot to our own glory, or for our own glory, you know, and our own desires and wishes too often. But if we are seeking in everything we do in life to glorify God, to make Him known, to, to, to make Him known to people, and to make Him known in the sense of who He is and, and His greatness and glory, then we're influential. We have a purpose. Let's move on to the parable of the hidden treasure. I don't know if we'll finish this, but that's your second sheet. Matthew 13 and verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. In the field. Notice again the comma in the English. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Comma. The, the modifying phrase, the relative clause here, it, it tells us some details to help us understand the the comparison, but the comparison is already made in the first phrase here. He's comparing the kingdom of heaven to a treasure hidden in the field, he says, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now that's where people get tripped up in interpreting this, this parable. That he goes and sells all he has, buys the field the treasure is in, and you start thinking about, well, What's going on here? This is a parable about grace, not works. Jesus didn't teach works. He didn't teach us that it costs us something to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's free. So what does this parable mean? All we have is verse 44. The parable of the sower. And the parable of the tares, those first two parables we looked at, look at the context here, they describe the human and satanic response to the kingdom of heaven. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, that's another two that are closely related. They describe the great growth and influence of the kingdom of heaven. So the parables are occurring here in pairs. The sower and the tares, that's one a little bit of different focus of the two, but you're dealing with pretty much the same thing. The mustard seed and the leaven, a little bit of different focus, growth versus permeation, they're still real closely related, another pair. We're about to begin a third pair. What follows are two more closely related parables, and it begins with the parable of the hidden treasure. The next one, which we will not get to today, it's the parable of the merchant who buys the pearl. Let's understand the parable. The point of the parable is the great value of the treasure. Don't make it walk on force beyond that. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. In the days in which Jesus and those who heard him give this parable lived, it was not unusual to find hidden treasure buried in a field. They didn't have banks. For the most part, there was no way to 
secure your valuables other than hiding it. But over time, people would hide valuables and perhaps die or be carried away into captivity as a lot of them were. Or perhaps it was a you know, threat, an invasion or whatever, and they would hide it and then they were killed. I mean, just there's all kinds of reasons why there would be potential treasure troves available to be found in the ground. It was common. According to Jewish rabbinical law, if you found a treasure, if you found valuables buried in a field that nobody had a claim to, they were yours. To be akin to modern day treasure hunters that hunt for ships that sank back in the, the days where they were hauling gold coins back and forth between Europe and the New World. Whoever finds the treasure, it's theirs. Except for what the government says they have claim to. But uh, beyond that, it belongs to who finds it. Don't get hung up thinking that, well, goodness, the treasure was in somebody else's field, so this man was being dishonest to go and, and buy the field without telling anybody and, uh, and obtaining it. Don't make it walk on all fours. And, and, and understand the cultural significance here. It was free to whoever found it. How do we know the owner of the field? How do we know it wasn't his? Because he's willing to sell the field to the guy. <laughs> he found the treasure. He goes and sells everything he has and comes and buys the field off of the guy. If the guy, if it was his treasure, he would have never sold that field without removing the treasure. He, it wasn't him. Somebody else, probably somebody else hid it there years ago before he even owned a field. It belonged to the man who found it. But consider the man who found it, if it wasn't his field, was probably working for somebody else. It's kind of like what we would say, an employee. So he didn't have a whole lot, probably. And he probably didn't have his own field. So what's he going to do with his treasure? If he, if he digs it up and leaves, well, what's he going to do with it? Everybody doesn't know he has it. It's going to be in danger of somebody else taking it from him. So he wants to leave it where it's at. So he buys the field just to hide, to keep the treasure hidden there. But it was his. How much did it cost the man who found the treasure to own it? Nothing. The only thing that cost him anything was the place to put it. That's important to understand. Because the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure that a man finds. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything to get into the kingdom of heaven. But once you're in the kingdom of heaven, you have the most valuable thing on planet earth. We don't have to find a field to bury it in. But we're rich. Spiritually and eternally. 
The treasure was free to take. The finders could keep the unclaimed treasure. The purchase of the field was not necessary to obtain the treasure. It only demonstrates the value of the treasure. If it was a very inexpensive or something that wasn't worth a whole lot, Lonnie just dug it up, took it, and put it on the shelf and all. They couldn't do that. So the, the value of it. Point, the great value of the treasure. The treasure was free. Finders could keep unclaimed treasure. The purchase of the field was not necessary to obtain it. The value of the treasure is the only point then to the parable. That's a lot to kind of get a hold of. So is anything unclear? Is there a question? Uh, about what we just went through. Now next week we're going to look at the merchant who buys the pearl. It was exceedingly valuable. There's a purchase price next week. That pearl wasn't free. We'll understand why because of who purchased the pearl. But that's for next week. The interpretation that being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is the most valuable thing in the world. There is nothing that even gets close to being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, to knowing the Lord Jesus Christ your Savior, being secure in Him, and having an eternal destiny. You inherit all things with you. Nothing compares to that. Applications. Nothing. This world has to offer compares to being a citizen of heaven. Who has Mark 8 36? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And who has Philippians 3 20? But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Wait a minute, we exist in the kingdom of heaven down here. But remember, kingdom of heaven. The of represents where they come from, the source. The kingdom we live in, the kingdom of heaven we live in here, knowing Jesus Christ, in that kingdom, it's a kingdom of heaven. It's a kingdom that gets its connection with, its source from, Heaven. So it's not unusual for Paul to say we're a, a, we're a citizen of heaven. Because the kingdom of heaven is from heaven. To be a, a citizen in the kingdom of heaven means we're a citizen of heaven forever. <coughs> when the kingdom of heaven becomes a millennial kingdom, we're still a kingdom. And we're still a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, right? So a citizen of heaven. That's our position in Christ. Nothing's going to change that. Nothing's going to take it away from us. And what he has prepared for us, we can't even comprehend. Another application. We must not love this world. 
Matthew 6, 19 to 24. Pastor Dave preached a message on that when he was preaching on the series on giving. Lay up not for yourselves what? Treasures on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven. Now he's talking about what we do with our life, obviously. We should not fall in love with this world and all that this world has to offer. It won't last very long. You probably heard the story of John D. Rockefeller when he died. Word began to get around that he died. He's worth billions and billions of dollars. And some reporter came up and asked somebody that was, I guess, the person to ask, well, how much, how much did John D. Rockefeller leave behind? And the answer was, all of it. <laughs> Has no value, eternally. John 2, 15-17 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And it goes on to describe the things that are in the world. And he says they, John says they are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Go back and connect all three of them with Eve's choice in the garden, and they're there. Lust of the eyes. It was, it was beautiful. I'll just touch it. I want to possess it. I want to possess what I see. Have what I can see somebody else has. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. You'll be like God. You'll know more. It'll benefit you. Personal pride. And then lust of the flesh. It'll be good to eat. Satisfy your fleshly desires. Go to Matthew 4. The temptation of Jesus. It's all there. Turn the stone into bread. Lust of the flesh. Be good to eat. He was supposed to be fasting though. That was the will of the Spirit to sit him there. So that would have been wrong. The temptation was. Satisfy your lust. The lust of your flesh. Your fleshly desires. Throw yourself off the temple. The angels will bear you up. That, that, was, that would have been true. That would have happened. But. It would have been a display of pride. He didn't come to be a king. He didn't come for international acclamation. He came to die for us. Out of place in God's will. And then, then Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world. <laughs> Give all this to you. You know, they're all there. Lust of the flesh. The pride of life. And then finally, the lust of the eyes. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. What's he talking about? He's talking about the things that we have to deal with in our heart and soul because we live in this world. Our own lust, our own pride. Love not the world. See, satisfying the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's all about us. Not glorifying God. And everything we can obtain by satisfying all those desires which come from our fallen nature will mean nothing. Nothing in terms of eternity. All right, I actually got done on time, both of those. Um, some of you may have something swirling around in your mind you want to say, uh, an illustration, a comment. <coughs> Uh, something you've observed, thought about, or a question you have. Does anybody know? Yes. I see in the second parable um, that he gave up everything he had in the world for the treasure. 
and three, that's what we were, talk we were talking about. The things in this world, the pride, the ownership. Nothing else in that man's life had any value once he had that dream. Can I tell the story about the guy that uh, was a good man and good guy? I know he can't bring you anything to heaven, but if I could just bring a gunny sack of my earthly goods, could I do that? And God said, Well, yeah, you've been a good, good man, good soldier. And so he hobbled up some gold bricks in his bag, and on his deathbed, he dies and goes to heaven. And St. Peter said, What you got there? He said, I got my earthly goods. And he said, No, no, that's not how it works. He said, No, I got a special mission. He said, No, that's not right. Yeah. You see, you can bring one gunny sack of early goods. I've never seen that before. What you got there? He opens up. You see these gold bricks in there. And St. Peter goes, you can bring anything up here and you brought pavement? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. <laughs> Not a story. A good joke. It makes a point. Anybody else? God bless you. Thank you for being here. One thing that makes teaching in a church so special to me and so different from any other is that everybody's here because they want to be here. Yes.